Let's, uh, let's read the scripture first. I usually do an intro, but I'm gonna change things up this week. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 15, verses seven through 21. 15 chapters through, only 50 total. Got a little time in Genesis, camp out. And he, God, said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought them all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nations that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Zebulun. Jebusites. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. How do you prove to someone that you're going to keep your promise? How do you assure another person that your word is good and that you will do what you say you will do? In business, it's pretty easy, you, you put down money. Money is usually at stake. We are probably gonna rent out our house that hasn't sold yet for a month, and the people that are gonna rent it will pay us for that month, but they'll also give us a check, a deposit, that tells us if we keep this contract, if we keep our word to be out when you ask us and not trash your house, we will get this check back. And if not, you can keep it. That's how it works in business, is a great incentive. But in our personal relationships, when there's no money down, how do you get someone to trust your word? I'm reminded of a scene in a, from a sports movie where the father of an NFL quarterback is talking to an agent and he's committing to him. And he says, you know, I don't do contracts. But what you have is my word, and it's stronger than oak. 
Of course, later in the movie, they've moved on to a different agent and backed off of their vocal pledge, their verbal pledge. So in personal dealings, we often feel the need to promise. And sometimes it's not enough to say, my word is good. And so we will take oaths upon ourselves or upon our loved ones. I swear on my firstborn, some would say. Some would say, I swear on my mother's grave. And then the one we all learned in elementary school, I cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, right? Verbal pledges that you can trust me. And we swear on something so extreme as death because that is the highest pledge. It is the ultimate sign that we will do what we have bound ourselves. And that's essentially what's happening in this passage today. God is making promises to Abram that he is sealing with an oath. In fact, what is known as a covenant ratification ceremony, we'll talk about that, is the biblical equivalent of saying, I cross my heart and hope to die if I break this pledge. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, and I'm going to be moving around a bit. In fact, I'm going to somewhat go backwards. We're going to start at the end, because I think the text sort of calls for that approach. Uh, the end of the scripture, the last uh, four or five verses, really give us a frame of reference. So let's look at verses 18 through 21. Elias, you can put that up. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of, and then he lists all those tribes. So this passage is about God's promise of land to Abram. We've been following God's dealing with Abram. And remember that his promises to Abram had been about making a great nation from him. And to have a great nation, you need at least three things. You need a great king, you need lots of people, and you need land. And so there's no dispute, God is the great king here. And the last week when we read the first six verses of the chapter and Dr. Dave preached, that dealt with the people and God told Abram, I will bring descendants from your body, not from your servants, and they will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And now today, we're moving on. We're talking about the land that is promised. And God has promised this land twice before, but each time, he's been somewhat vague. And so he's revealing it a piece at a time, getting more specific uh, Genesis 12, 7, if you remember back, Abram had just relocated to the land of Canaan. And God says, to your offspring, I will give this land. And then in Genesis 13, after Abram and Lot separate, Abram's still sitting in the land and God says, look north, south, east, and west, as far as you can see, that's the land that I will give to your descendants. But here God gets a little more specific. And he gives him some boundaries. And he gives him, tells him who's living there. And that's a great promise, a huge amount of land for someone who's living in tents. 
But there's a serious problem. There are lots of people in this land. It's one thing to promise an empty land that you and your descendants will get to. It's another to say, you're going to get there, but you may have a fight on your hands to take possession of it. So the land is promised, but it's a promise that will not be fully realized for hundreds of years. And to understand that, we have to look at God's prophecy. My second point, verses 12 through 16. God's prophecy. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." So Abram falls asleep in verse 12. And he has a dream that is essentially the events of the book of Exodus. The darkness and dread that Abram feels in this sleep is related to the future time that God is prophesying, is telling him about. And that would not be my favorite dream. Imagine getting that dream. Your great-grandchildren will live in slavery. It'll be a blessing that you'll be given this great nation, but they will endure 400 years of hardship and affliction. Tough dear dream to hear for Abram. So if you've ever wondered why God allowed the Israelites to be in Egypt for 400 years, Essentially from after Joseph dies and a new Pharaoh's raised up that doesn't, didn't know Joseph. The end of the, the beginning of the book of Exodus says, and all the way until God raises up Moses as the deliverer. It's 400 years. Verses 13 through 16 help us to understand why God waited. He didn't lose track of him. He does not forget his promises. But he's already said it's going to be some time. And one of the reasons he gives is that the Amorites who live there, God says they need time to sin. Their wickedness needs to run its course. It needs to reach such a height that when the Israelites return to the land, that will be the perfect time for God to judge them through the Israelites conquering them. God knew the timing, and even though it seemed cruel to keep the Israelites in captivity, it was timed with other world events. Israel is not the only people that God is dealing with. Matthew Poole, one of the commentators I read, has said this, as God exactly observes the number and measure of men's sins, so he determines within himself how far and how long he will bear with sinful men or nations, and what shall be the period of his patience. And when that comes, their measure is full, 
and their destruction infallibly comes. God had set a time for judgment for these nations, both the nation that Israel would come out of, Egypt, and the nations that they were going to. And so we're going to pause here and and draw out some application here. These are not my main points. I'm throwing this in free of charge. But a couple areas of application I think we can see. Number one, we could apply this to those who have not professed faith in Christ. We would say this to you. God knows the length of your life. You do not. If you think that you have years, decades left to decide on spiritual matters, you may be right, but you may be wrong. You may not have much time. And so we would plead with you to decide to not let time go by and to consider the claims of the scriptures, to consider faith in Jesus Christ before it's too late. For believers, this is a good time to apply this as well and to get a good perspective on our lives and God's will. To remind ourselves that when we don't think God is working in our lives the right way, there might be really good reasons for that. Maybe you're angry with God because you had your heart set on another person that you wanted to marry or another thing in your life you wanted to pursue and God has shut that door or things didn't work out. Consider the possibility that God has done that for a great reason, maybe in that other person's life. Maybe you're mad you didn't get a promotion at work. Consider the fact that maybe God promoted someone who's going to give him great glory or that he will work and shape. It's human nature to see our circumstances and to be either delighted or disappointed in in whether they meet our expectations or not. But God is working on lives all around us. We wouldn't understand his plans. This side of heaven, we will not understand how he's working. But we have to trust his heart. We have to trust him as he works out his sovereign will in our lives and in those around us. And this is a good reminder, too, that you might need to suffer that you may face trials and tribulations, and that may be a good thing. The scriptures promise that trials bring us, they produce perseverance, character, and hope. Now, my third point, my parents tried to talk me out of this. I was talking about the sermon. It's kind of a joke. I had two Ps, as my points, and I needed a third one. So fit the text, I figured it rolls right off the tongue, perambulation, right? Easy to remember, promised land, prophecy, and perambulation. You'll all remember that, I'm sure. And any student that has studied for the SAT, I'm sure, could tell you the definition, to walk through. 
the walking, you didn't know that? The walking through ceremony. Let's look at verses 7 through 10, and then verse 17. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Skip down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Now this is a puzzling part of this passage. God identifies himself reminds Abram that he brought him out of his homeland to this new land. And Abram says essentially about that land, how, how am I going to know? How do I, how do I know you're going to give that to me? I'm going to possess it. And God essentially says, I'm going to make this very concrete for you, Abram. He says, go find some animals. And you might think initially that the animals were there for a sacrifice, Abram's been setting up altars, and the sacrifice was very common throughout the Old Testament. But this doesn't seem like a sacrifice. There is no altar. It doesn't seem like the elements are there. And verse 18 tells us that God made a covenant that day. And the Hebrew phrase, to make a covenant, can also be translated to cut a covenant And it's derived from the practice of cutting animals, severing animals as the seal of a treaty. So the way this worked, the ancient Near East treaties, happened like this. When two kings or two heads of tribes or even two people, when they came with a covenant, with an agreement between them, they would formalize it with this ceremony. They would take animals, split them in half, and make two paths. And then they would walk in between. And what they were saying in that symbolic action, as both of them walked, is that if I break this covenant that we've made, may I be torn in half. May I be as these animals have been. It was a way of swearing on their lives. When God tells Abram to cut up, to to bring the animals, Abram apparently knows what's happening. He doesn't question. And God doesn't even have to tell him to cut up the animals. Abram does it. He knows what's coming. And he probably thinks that they will be walking through this together to seal the covenant because that's how it's done. Both parties, let's walk through together and both take this oath. But then God puts him to sleep. And at first it looks like no one passes through, right? There's a pot, a smoking pot and a torch. What's going on here? Is this some kind of, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path? I don't think so. 
I think we have to understand that these are symbols that God uses, but that it is God himself that is walking through. And what we need to see is that God has put Abram to sleep so that he can walk through it by himself. Because God is taking upon himself the covenant curse. He's saying, regardless of which side of the covenant is broken, I will take the punishment myself. God is essentially pledging to fulfill his promise no matter what his people do. Now, we were talking about this uh, idea in family devotions. And I, we were talking about the idea that God seems to pledge his own life as a seal of the covenant. And one of my children said, but dad, God can't die. I said, that's a, that's a good point. Fair point, child. But is that true? Does God pledge himself to something that can't happen? You see, thousands of years after God walked through this path, through these broken animals, he set the time to punish the sin of the covenant breakers. Israel, as a people that had come from Abram, had shown herself to be an unfaithful, covenant-breaking people. And God knew that all people have broken his covenant. You and I have broken his covenant, failed. We have sinned and brought the punishment of death upon ourselves. But God turned to his son and sent him into the world with a mission to stand in the place of all those who have broken the covenant by having his body broken on the cross. To bear in his own body the wounding, the crushing, the punishment that we deserve. Now I am going to go out on a little limb here. I was talking with another PCA pastor this week. We had lunch and I was telling him what I was preaching on. And I said, I haven't really seen this in many of the commentaries I've looked at. And I don't know if I'm on solid ground or not. But what do you think about this passage? And he said, you know what? I see it exactly like you do. And what we both saw was that there are two symbols there. The smoking pot and the flaming torch. And he said, that's God the Father and God the Son walking through, making the covenant together. Now, that is the vaguest of vague hints in this text, so I'm not going to stand by that, die on that hill. Um, That may not be the interpretation, but either way, God is pledging himself. And Jesus certainly knew that this was his mission, didn't he? In John 2, 19, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And John immediately says he wasn't talking about the temple, he was talking about his own body. Because he knew his mission. In the Last Supper, Jesus says, this is my body, what? Broken for you. 
You see, in this strange passage that is easy to read right over, skip right over as you're reading Genesis, we have a beautiful picture of the gospel, of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He is the atonement that pays for our sin as our substitute. God himself, even though he has perfectly kept his part of the covenant, and he cannot fail the covenant or any of his promises, even though he's perfectly kept it, he stands in and takes the penalty for the covenant breakers. And because God has taken upon himself the punishment of our covenant breaking, the promised land is now ours. And I'm not talking about a stretch of land in the Middle East that Abram had been promised, but the promised land of heaven, of eternal life. Hebrews 9.28 says, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are now waiting for him. This world is not our home. And we were meant for a greater place. We are destined for the promised land. We will be brought to our eternal home. Because we did not have to die spiritually for our sins and our covenant breaking, Christ died in our place. Let's pray. Father God, your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our paths. Lord, your word, the scriptures reveal all truth to us. Without it, we would have no understanding of your salvation We could not imagine a God who expects perfection from his people and is so holy that he cannot be in the presence of sin. And yet even as he holds his people to that standard, he makes an amazing provision for them because he knows that they cannot keep his covenant. Lord, you knew that we would break any covenant, any promise you made with us, that we are helpless and hopeless in our sin, and yet you chose to make provision for that covenant breaking. And you called that curse on yourself, And we see that throughout the scriptures in the very small seed form in Genesis and as it widens and opens up and as the prophets speak of the new covenant and as the New Testament, the gospels reveal to us Christ's mission to come and die in our place. God, we thank you. That was your plan. Lord, we throw ourselves at your feet in thanksgiving for who you are and your plan to rescue us from our sins.